want to welcome you now to week two of our series uh, called Belief in the Age of Skepticism. And um, I think, uh, I know this is a bold thing to say, and it might be a little too early to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think this is going to be a good series. And uh, I have a very specific reason that I say that. Um, and it's directly tied to events that have transpired in my, my family's lives this week. If you follow my wife on Instagram, I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, last week was the first time that we had, had run multiple services since March 8th, 2020. So it, was, it, it felt a little bit like, um, you know, muscles that just hadn't been flexed in, in a while. And uh, to be honest with you, I really felt... I just didn't feel great about my messages. I didn't, you know, I kind of felt like it came across differently than I intended. Uh, but I got a lot of great feedback that was really encouraging, um, which, which really meant a lot to me. And uh, so anyway, I went home after church, and my wife is a NICU nurse and exclusively works the night shift. So she went in uh, to the hospital, and um, the next morning, Monday morning at 8 a.m., um, she was leaving work and discovered uh, that our vehicle had been stolen out of the parking garage. And that's why I know this series is going to be great. <laughs> because I had a number of godly people say, Ryan, that's evidence that you're doing what you should be doing. And so what I mean is uh, the devil stole my car is what happened this week. And uh, I don't know who was not sending me thoughts and prayers, but this is on you. Whoever you are out there, send them next time. This is what happens. This is why you send thoughts and prayers. So I dropped, I dropped my kids off at school uh, Monday morning, and I got into the office at 8.30, and I was pumped. You know, it's Monday. I'm going to put this great teaching together. And, and then I get this text message from my wife, and she says, hey, babe, don't freak out, but the car is stolen. And I thought, hey, babe, those two statements don't go together. It just doesn't work like that. It's either don't freak out because we still have a car, or uh, we don't have a car, so you should be freaking out as loudly as possible, which is what I chose to do. So it's been a, it's been a bit of a week. I uh, haven't, haven't recovered the vehicle yet, um, but it's, it's like, you know, I, I always remember my dad tells me, you know, you just got to look at the bright side. I haven't found it yet, but when I do, I'm going to look at it a whole lot. So, uh, I've been looking forward to telling you that all week. All right. Welcome to week two of Belief in the Age of Skepticism. The goal of this series is uh, to communicate the truth of Christianity in a way that builds your faith. And so we're looking at the foundations of, uh, of the Christian faith, kind of loosely using something called the Apostles' Creed as an outline. The Apostles' Creed um, is actually, it's, it's an amazing um, statement because it's actually the oldest summary of biblical doctrine that we have. And it starts with the words, I believe, which is where we started last week. We talked about the concept of belief. And what I wanted to do with that teaching is just lay the foundation for this series and sort of put everybody on to the idea that everyone has a belief system. You know, we're, we're living in, in the late modern secular age, which is uh, a culture in which people for, for the first time ever are a people who believe that they don't have beliefs. But the truth is, and I, and I you know, tried to tease this idea out in about 30 minutes last week, that everyone has a belief system. And so really the question is, does your belief system have what it takes to satisfy your mind and your heart? And, and what I mean by that is, does your belief system um, have the ability to help you make sense of what you see out in the world uh, but also, does, it help, uh, uh, d does your belief system have what it takes to help you make sense of what you find in your own heart? So, so, so really, the, the question that, that I think we are, we are always presented with and should be asking ourselves is, does my belief system help me make sense of reality 
as I experience it? And does it also have what it takes to satisfy in an existential way the deepest longings of the human heart? Um, Obviously, as a Christian minister, I'm a little bit biased there. I believe that Christianity has the ability to do that like no other belief system on the planet. That was last week. But if you know the Apostles' Creed, you know that it says, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, today I am tasked with explaining God in 30 minutes. Not the easiest thing I've ever had to do, but I, I do believe if you're going to look at one passage in Scripture that gives you a great, robust, concentrated understanding of who God is, I don't think there's a better one than the one we're going to look at today. Very famous encounter recorded for us between Moses and God in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. So I'm going to read that to us, and we're going to um, walk through it. It says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses answered. Do not come closer, God said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me. And I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I've sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what should I tell them? And this is verse 14. It's my favorite part of this whole passage. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And this is God's word. <clears throat> Last week we talked about how in the, the West... Um, we're becoming an increasingly secular culture in which fewer and fewer people are believing in God. Uh, however, it's important to remember that the West is not the world. And in the world at large, um, most people still believe in the existence of a God, even if they don't know who that God is or have a personal relationship with that God. And, and really, that's where Moses was prior to this encounter in his life. Prior to this, like everyone else in the ancient Near East, he believed that there was some God out there, but he did not have a personal relationship with that God. Uh, and it was at, at this encounter, at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, um, that his sort of abstract, merely intellectual belief in God 
um, became a deeply personal encounter with God that changed him forever. And, and really my hope, specifically in this teaching, but really throughout this whole series, is that what happened to Moses would happen to all of us. That God would go from being just this, this abstract, impersonal, intellectual idea that we think of from time to time to a person that we encounter and are changed by. And what I want to do during our time together this morning is look at this passage and, um, and, and draw out four things that this shows us about God, really that we need to accept if we're to have a life-changing encounter with God. And so with that, I'm not going to waste any time here. I'll, I'll just get right into our first idea. It's the first thing that this story shows us about God. Number one, it's that God is a real God. <clears throat> so why, why start with a, with a concept that elementary? Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible, but Thomas Jefferson famously went through the Bible with a penknife and cut out everything that he didn't like. And so every time he came across something uh, that he thought, you know, God wouldn't say that, God, you know, wouldn't do that, God isn't really like that, he just cut those sections out of the Bible. And what he was left with has been famously called the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible. And uh, it's, it's important to realize that when Thomas Jefferson did that, he was not only creating his own version of the Bible, he was creating his own version of God. And the reason that I reference that story is because in, in our culture in which truth is subjective uh, and we sort of lead with my version of truth versus your version of truth and, and I get to kind of decide and determine reality for myself, all hallmarks of the, of the late modern mind, it's become increasingly popular uh, for people um, to do that with God, to believe that they have the right to sort of decide for themselves who God is. That's why you'll hear it's very, very uh, common to hear, well, I don't really like to think of God like that. I like to think of God like this. And so in our, our culture, in the Western world, it's really common for people to say, well, I don't really like to think of God as an angry God or a God who would punish people. I want to think of God as, as a God that just accepts everybody. And it's, I think it's worth holding on to that, that if, if you didn't live in the Western world, in, in a lot of non-Western worlds, you'd actually hear exactly the opposite. That in the, in the non-Western world, it's, it's far more common than not to hear somebody say, well, I don't really like to think of God as a God that just accepts everybody. I like to think of God as a God of justice and a God of standards and a God who's going to punish people according to their deeds. But the point is, when you do that, you're really doing the same thing that Thomas Jefferson did, which is just making God in your own image. And I think it's... it's um, it's just interesting to highlight that as quick as we are to do that with God, we don't even really do that with each other. Uh, and what I mean by that is no one has ever come up to me after a service and said, Ryan, it's really nice to meet you. I just want you to know that when I think of you, I like to think of a six foot eleven Romanian power forward for the NBA. Uh, because I would say, hey, you can't do that. You, you can't just make up who you think I am and then expect to have an actual relationship with me. If you're interested in actually having a relationship with me, um, it's not about determining who I am. It's about discovering who I am and accepting uh, who I am and dealing with me um, on the basis of, of who I am. And I, I think it's fair to say that if God exists, if you will grant that there is a God, I think God is at least as real as that, meaning I think he's at least as real as me. I think he's a whole lot more real than me, actually, but he's certainly not less real than me. And if, if that's the case, then that means that we shouldn't believe that we get the right to determine who he is or what he's like. We should simply discover and accept and deal with him on the basis of who he actually is. And, and, and really, that's, that's um, I would say, the overarching idea that this passage gives us about God, that he's a real God, 
um, that we don't get to create, we don't get to modify, and we don't get to domesticate, you know, use him and manipulate him and subject him to our purposes and our means and our agenda and our ends. And there's, there's, I just want to look at two main ways that, that, that this um, text gets this idea across. The first is in the fact that when God appears to Moses, he appears in a fire. But it's a fire unlike any fire anyone's ever seen before. You see it in verses 2 and 3. It says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame of fire within the bush. And as Moses looked, he saw the bush was on fire but not consumed. And so Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight why isn't the bush burning up? So right off the bat, what we're, what we're being shown here is that though God is appearing as a fire, this is a fire unlike anything anyone has ever seen before this or since then. And uh, I'm, I'm going to lean on my Fire Academy education now and just point out something to you that I think you already know. Fire as we know it depends on fuel. And if you want to put the fire out, one of the best ways to do that is remove the fuel source. If you do that, the fire is eventually going to die. But what Moses discovered that day in Exodus 3 is that this fire didn't depend on anything. The reason it wasn't consuming the bush is because it didn't depend on the bush. It actually didn't depend on anything. This is an energy source um, that had the power of its own being within itself. In other words, it was self-sustaining. I just want to point out here, if we ever did discover something like this in the natural world, and, and somehow managed to harness that, it would completely revolutionize human existence overnight. Nothing like this exists in the known world, which is exactly the point. That's the first way it kind of gets the reality of God across. But the second way that this passage does this is in the name. Because in verse 14, it says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, Different versions of the Bible translate that verse differently, and the reason for that is because that verse is almost untranslatable. Uh, it's, a, it's a really unique exchange because what you have, if, if you read this in the original Hebrew, what happens is Moses asks God, he says, hey, people are going to ask me who the God is that has sent me, so what should I tell them your name is? And in response to this, God gives Moses the Hebrew verb to be extremely unique. And so if, if, if you were to translate this perfectly literally, although no Bible does this that I know of because it would sound so strange, it's almost as though Moses says, what should I tell them your name is? How, how, how do you identify yourself? What God is, is quite literally saying back to them, to Moses, he's saying, tell them that being itself has sent you. And so what you have here, this self-sustaining fire along with this name that God designates for himself, when you put these two ideas together, this is, it's God's way of telling Moses and it's Scripture's way of telling us how utterly real God is. Because through this self-sustaining fire, what God is saying is, I am dependent on nothing. Nothing created me and nothing sustains me. You've never seen anything like me before. And when he names himself I am, that's God's way of saying I'm the perpetually existing one. You know, I, I don't know if you watch Marvel movies, but they have like all these increasingly larger scale characters. You have like the Watcher and the One Who Remains. This is God saying, I'm the perpetually existing one. What that means is that there, there will never be a time, as long as time exists, and even beyond that, whatever that means, there will never be a moment in which it, it, it can be said God was. There has never been a moment in which it could have been said, God will be. 
So this is God unapologetically saying, I have no ending and I also have no beginning. This idea, which is sometimes called the self-existence of God, otherwise known as the aseity of God, um, this is on the one hand, from, from a purely philosophical standpoint, this is, is, is probably the most robust, um, strongest uh, argument for why there must be a God. And the argument basically goes like this. Um, everything in the natural world is caused by something else, including you and I. You have a cause that brought you into being. I have a cause that brought me into being. Everything that exists in the natural world was brought into being from something other than itself. Uh, spontaneous generation, the act of something simply popping into existence out of nothing, we know is impossible according to every known observable law that governs our universe. And so uh, the natural world, if you just kind of trace that argument back far enough, what you realize is that because there is a natural world uh, that cannot bring itself into existence, then logically there must be a supernatural being that existed before the natural world and outside the bounds of the natural world that brought said natural world into existence. This being is sometimes referred to in the context of this argument as the, um, the uncaused cause. Um, what God is saying to Moses here is, that's who I am. I am a being that depends on nothing. I'm a being that perpetually exists. I'm a being that is not created and needs nothing, and yet everything that was created depends on me and desperately needs me. And, and so even, even from a philosophical standpoint, I think this is a really satisfying explanation for everything is, is basically what I'm gesturing to there. And if, if, if like I'm, you know, most modern people really have trouble um, accepting the existence of the supernatural or, or allowing for miracles within their worldview, I just want to point out here that whether or not you believe in God, you have to eventually get to the reality that a miracle caused existence, that, that, that a miracle is the reason for the fact that there is something rather than nothing a little bit of a side note here. I don't know if you watch a lot of debates between leading, I know some of you do, but I don't know how many of you watch debates between some of the more leading atheist minds versus, um, you know, some of the more creationist minds. Like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris will sometimes debate men like William, William Lane Craig about how the universe existed. Here's what I've found. And if you ever watch some of those debates, I've noticed that people with an atheistic worldview will, um, they actually do a good job I would say, of sort of poking fun intellectually at Christianity when they dance around various parts of the Old Testament. Uh, and, and that's where they'll kind of concentrate, you know, their, their thoughts, where they'll say, like, you know, you actually believe in a Garden of Eden and a talking snake and fruit, and you're telling me there really was an ark, and Abraham got all those, you know, animals on there, and, and you know, Jonah really spent three nights in that big fish, you really believe that. But, but to me, the hollowness of an atheistic worldview is found when you simply go back to the issue of creation. Because when you take God out of the picture, then you have to say that the material world simply came into being on its own. And that's supposed to be the scientific explanation of the world. I just want to point out here, the idea that nothing became something and then exploded and then something crawled out of a puddle of ooze developed sentience, consciousness, and a sense of morality, and that's a scientifically satisfying explanation of the universe, pardon me for saying, leaves a little bit to be desired. But that's what you're left with if you take God out of the equation, that there was nothing, and then there was something, and then it became everything. Uh, or, or if you would say, well, no, I don't believe that nothing became something. I just believe that you, you, there was always something. Well, again, you're talking about a material that had no beginning, which is a scientific impossibility, also known as a miracle. And so my point in all that is to simply say, 
whether you consider yourself secular or religious, a person of faith or a person of, of, of reason, if you simply think back to the issue of creation itself, at bottom, you have to believe in a miracle. It's one of three answers. It created itself, it's always existed, or it was brought into existence by a creator. Uh, and so on the one hand, this exchange, for me at least, on the one hand, this exchange between Moses and God is very satisfying to me purely from a philosophical standpoint. But before we move on from this, I would also ask you to consider the implications of this first idea from, from, from a very practical and personal standpoint. Here's what I mean. If you and I uh, are willing to accept that God is, is, is a real God, that we don't get to create, invent, modify, tweak, you know, manipulate, any of that kind of stuff. This idea is, is a very humbling thing, but on the other side of that humbling, it, it's, it's, it's profoundly liberating. And he, uh, let me walk through that. Um, this is a humbling idea to accept, first and foremost, because if I accept that there is a real God out there, it means I'm not God. Uh, and what's inevitably going to happen is a real God is going to challenge you. A real God is going to say things that you don't like. And it's amazing how many people in the modern world will say, you know, the reason that I can't become a Christian is because I can't accept what the Bible says about, you know, this issue. I can't accept what God says about this topic. I could never be a Christian. I could never believe in him because of what he says here. The assumption underneath that is that God would never say something that challenges me. Worth considering. Uh, I just want to point out, and I think it's fair to say, that if there is, if you will grant that there is a transcendent being out there whose wisdom infinitely surpasses that of my own, it's reasonable to expect that he will at least occasionally say things that challenge me, and actually that's very good news. That's good news because if God never says anything that cuts across the grain of what I think or what I feel, that means that God and I agree about everything, which then means that God is no smarter than I am. That's horrifying. Because I've made a mess of my life more times than I can count, so I need a God who's higher than me. I need a God who's wiser than me. I need a God who challenges me. That's the humbling side of this. But on the other side of that, there's profound liberation. And I'll use one Bible verse to explain why. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 says that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And what that's talking about is, is universal to the human condition. Every one of us is going to be here. Some of us are probably here right now. When Scripture talks about your heart condemning you, that's just talking about a moment in your life when you come to terms with how weak you are and how frail you are, um, how temporary you are. Um, you know, it's, it's when you start to begin to crumble under the weight of your own failures and your own sins and your own inadequacies and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's those moments in life that brings us to the end of ourselves let me just say something that I think you already know, at least most of you, I'm sure, already know. The only God that can help you in those times when your own heart is condemning you, the only God that will help you in those times is a God that you did not create, a God who is real. That God will challenge you, but only that God can comfort you. That God will knock you down, but only that God can also pick you up when you can't pick yourself up. So first off, that's what we're shown here, that God, number one, is a God who is real. Now, the second thing that this passage is telling us about God, it's going to be our second idea today. Number two, that this is a God who can be known. All right, uh, there are plenty of religions that will attribute creation to some sort of divine being um, that, 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 that's more or less impersonal. Uh, actually, I would say most of the major religions, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shinto, Islam, Judaism, 
Um, all of those and, and probably several other major belief systems will attribute creation to some sort of divine being. But what we're also being shown here, uh, here and all throughout Scripture, is that not only is God real, but He's not some remote reality. He's not like, you know, the, the watchmaker that just wound up the universe and now He's hands off and He's just letting it kind of wind down, even though that's how a lot of people think of God and relate to Him. Um, and, and actually what, this, what Moses is showing us here is that it's not enough to know God in a purely intellectual and rational sense. What you and I most deeply need is to experience him in a personal existential sense. So how, how, does, this, how does this story get that across? Again, if you just think about the image of fire, you'll find it. I think it's really interesting. God could have appeared to Moses in any way that he chose. He could have appeared as a bright light. He could have just been an audible voice that Moses couldn't figure out where it was coming from, and he would have been led to the conclusion, all right, that's the voice of God kind of thing. But of all the ways that God manifested himself, he manifested himself in a fire. So just consider something as a thought experiment. When you are seated around a fire, uh, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say everybody here has experienced that, uh, you, you know when you're seated around a fire, you don't just know that the fire is there in an intellectual sense, in this kind of abstract way. You experience the fire in, in basically every way that the human body can, uh, y- meaning you feel the warmth of that fire on your skin. Uh, you, you know, you see it. There's a certain, especially at night, your, our eyes are almost drawn to it. It's like a, it's, it's a, it's mesmerizing almost. Uh, you hear it. You smell it. It's, it's, a, it's an all-encompassing experience. And what this is getting across and what the rest of Scripture says is, is that that's how you and I are made to know God, not just in an intellectual way, not just in a rational way, not just in this abstract we kind of think of him and maybe that gives you warm and fuzzies every once in a while kind of way. You have to experience him in a deeply personal way. I came across a story not too long ago of a... Um, I like this story because it's so directly tied to this chapter in Scripture. Um, Blaise Pascal, he's a, he's a, a famous French philosopher, he had a life-changing encounter with God that, that, that uh, he just never walked away the same from, and uh, he, he ties it, and he actually references this exact text in Scripture. Um, the reason we know this is because he journaled about it, and when he was done, he tore that page of his journal out, he sewed it into the lining of his coat, and uh, um, it was discovered when he died. And I, I just want to read a, a portion of it to you. It says, The Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, from about half past 10 at night until half past midnight, one word, all caps, FIRE. He said, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. Something that I think is so, um, so interesting about the way that he describes his encounter with God is that he specifically uses the phrase, um, not of the philosophers. It catches my eye because he was a philosopher. Uh, and, and prior to that moment in his life, that's all he'd known God as. He knew God as this kind of philosophical, maybe intellectually stimulating idea. But what happened that night is that something that he knew in his mind became real to his heart and he walked away from that personal encounter never the same again. Uh, That's exactly what happened to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And so the question that this passage should leave you and I asking ourselves, I'll just make it personal for you, do you just believe in God? Or or have you actually experienced him? You know, it it, it is so possible. You know, you hear all these stories about specifically, um, you know, kids raised in Christian homes. And they just look like, oh man, they're on fire for God. 
and uh, they were going to, you know, follow Jesus all the days of their life. And then they go out, you know, into the university or into the work life, and, and you see all these deconversion stories. And I think the best way to explain something like that is that it is so entirely possible to have a second-hand encounter with God and live off of somebody else's experiences with God. The problem with that is when those people are no longer in your life, that dog doesn't hunt anymore. You know, you, you get out into a new setting surrounded by new people. You can't live off of somebody's faith anymore. I mean, you never could, but now you have to deal with it. And so the question is, have you ever personally had an encounter with God? Has it ever come home to you? And, and as I ask this question, I want to be careful because anyone who's lived the Christian life for any length of time, and, and I have the privilege of pastoring, pastoring a church, there's people listening to me right now. You've been walking with Jesus longer than I've been breathing, and so I know you'll be the first people to say amen to this. A huge part of the Christian life is holding on to what you know despite how you immediately feel, you know. Uh, you read the book of Psalms, which is so encouraging to me. The, the, the psalmist over and over and over again is dealing with the fact they're just, you know, it's basically they're journaling their prayers saying, I feel abandoned. I feel like God doesn't love me. I feel like he didn't mean anything he promised me. I feel like the night's never going to be over and the day's never going to come and, I, you know, my life's over and all this kind of stuff. And what they're doing, psalm after psalm, is what we have to do so often, which is just hold on to what we know despite how we believe. Um, and, and the other thing that I would say along with this idea that's important to highlight is we all have different temperaments. You know, some of us are, are simply not that prone to having overtly, outwardly emotional encounters. And so please don't hear me saying that unless you were weeping during worship a couple moments ago, you should question your salvation. Of course, it's going to look you know, differently for different people. Some people, you know, they wear it on the outside. Some people, it's far more internal. But the question remains, and nobody can answer this for you, but the question remains, have you ever had a personal encounter with God? Uh, I've heard it said that the spiritual disciplines, I love the way that this is phrased, the spiritual disciplines, you know, reading, um, praying, meditating, um, you know, attending to worship, um, you know, the, the sacraments, that the spiritual disciplines that God, God's given us, they're our ways of warming ourselves at the fire of God's love. I, I love the way that that's phrased because that's what this is really about. It's about warming ourselves at the fire of God's love. Nobody lives by that fire. Nobody wakes up every moment of their life with butterflies in their stomach elated because God loves them every moment of their life. Right? Everybody goes through the valley. Everybody, you know, goes through a dry season. The strongest Christians I know experience what Puritans refer to as the dark night of the soul. But the question remains, have you ever been by the fire? Have you ever had an encounter with God that left you changed? That you know something happened there beyond just the intellectual? Something happened there beyond just the abstract? Because secondly, what this is showing us is that this is a God who can be known. So, so first off, he's a God who's real. Secondly, he's a God who can be known. But thirdly, what this passage shows us, I really wasn't that sure how to phrase this idea. So this is the best that I could come up with. Number three, that God is a paradoxical God. And I'll show you what I mean here. In verse four, it says, when the Lord saw that he, being Moses, had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses answered. So what you see in verse 4 is that God wants, God desires, he's a God who desires relationship with Moses. He desires relationship with all of us. Uh, he appears to Moses. He's calling out to Moses. And on the other hand of that, obviously, Moses is drawn in. He wants a relationship with God. He's captivated. He's interested. He's moving towards God. But then this tension is brought to the fore in this text that seems paradoxical. It's verses 5 and 6. Do not come closer 
God said, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Verse 6, then God continued, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So, so here's the tension. God is calling out to Moses, and yet he tells Moses, you can't come any further. You know, Moses is drawing near to God, and yet he's hiding his face in fear. And, and what we're being shown here is something that's so vital to, to understand, not only about God, but about ourselves. And this is why it's so, um, so brilliant to me that God decided to manifest his presence as fire. One of the unique properties that you and I are probably all too familiar with regarding fire is that at the same time, fire is attractive and fatal. Meaning, there are situations where you could find yourself in this life where if you do not draw near to a fire, you will die. Uh, that being said, if you draw too near to that fire, you will die. And so fire has the ability within itself both to be a life-saving and a life-taking entity. And, and so what this is showing us about God, this is so brilliant to me, this is one of the statements that, that we see all over Scripture uh, that, that um, it's really a profound statement about ourselves that I think it perfectly explains what we see out in the world and what we find in our own hearts. What this is getting across is this idea that we can't live with God, but we can't live without Him. That's the human condition. We can't live without Him because we were made for a relationship with Him, and we're, we're never going to find what we most deeply need apart from Him. I mean, so much of, of the brokenness of, of human behavior out in the world can be described as people demand that other people and things be and do for them what only God can be and do for them, and it never works. That, that explains about 99% of the stupid things that I've done, maybe 100% of it. Maybe you take a look at your own life, that explains a whole lot of, of, of you as well. St. Augustine said that God created us for himself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. So we can't live without him, and yet Scripture also affirms that at a deeper level, because we're sinful, because we're flawed, uh, because we're broken at a fundamental level, God's presence that, we're, that we, we need is also something that we find profoundly traumatic and even fatal. And, and that, that you know, because now you're talking about the holiness of God, that's something that's very difficult for modern people to, to wrestle with. But I think we can explain, we can, we can, I think this is easily understandable when you look at it in, in human terms. Let me just kind of use a goofy example here. If you are a person that finds, this is pretty common, but if you're a person who finds your identity in your athletic ability, which a lot of people do, um, th then what will happen is it'll be incredibly, it'll be devastating for you when you spend time with, uh, you know, or, or play sports with people who are far more athletically gifted than you. Uh, and I, I need you to focus in on the phrasing I use there. I'm not talking about if you just like sports. If you like sports and you play with people that are amazing, it'll be entertaining. But if you find your identity in your athletic ability, like if you're going through life as like an Uncle Rico, Napoleon Dynamite reference, you know, like you're in your 60s, but you're still talking about high school, coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have taken states for sure, I could throw a football quarter mile kind of thing. If that's where you're going through life, your whole identity is wrapped up in your athletic ability, it will be devastating to be around people that, uh, you know, whose abilities dwarf your own because it'll just make you feel so inferior. It'll be like you're, you know, you're basically becoming undone. And one place that you see this on display regularly is actually uh, in, uh, the NBA. Um, the NBA, because I say, I say that because um, it's really common for NBA commentators or analysts to be retired NBA legends, you know, like, like Shaq and, and Charles Barkley. And they're super um, entertaining. 
Um, but what, I, what you'll notice if you watch them for any length of time is that they spend basically all their time absolutely trashing and mercilessly criticizing current NBA players for one reason. It's because those current NBA players are smashing all the records that they themselves once held. And now everybody wants their jerseys and their shoes, and they forgot about these guys that used to be heroes. And you can look at that and say, that's so pathetic that they're that insecure, but we're all like that. I mean, it's a, it's a painful thing for the human heart when we, when we sense that our greatness is being eclipsed by, by someone else's greatness. And you can see this in any area of life. You know, maybe the, maybe the sports analogy means nothing to you, but if you find your identity in your physical beauty, um, in your intelligence, in your success, or in your wealth, then it will be devastating to you when you spend time around people who you believe are more physically beautiful than you, more intelligent than you, more successful than you, more wealthy than you. That being said, that, the Bible teaches that on a cosmic scale, that's what happens to the human soul in the presence of God, in the presence of the holiness and the transcendence and the perfection and the beauty of God. Now, if you think about that now, doesn't it make perfect sense that when Adam and Eve sinned and for the first time experienced this foreign entity called shame tearing their heart apart, that they ran away from rather than toward God? Isn't it interesting that they didn't say, we got to run to God to fix this. They knew they were so deeply flawed that they, for the first time in their life, became terrified of perfection itself. It's the same reason why the prophet Isaiah, when he saw the transcendent glory of God and the, and the train of his robe filling the temple with glory, the first words out of Isaiah's mouth, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Reality is, before that encounter with the manifest glory of God, Isaiah was already a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips. But when he was in the presence of the greatness of God, the perfection and the beauty and the holiness of God, the flaws that he already knew were there became so painful that it was like he was coming apart. That's the human condition. Drawn to something that we can't entertain the presence of. So when you understand that, you understand that the question this passage raises is not, uh, how was the bush not consumed? It's how wasn't Moses consumed? How on earth did this flawed Israelite man get to come anywhere near the warmth of the fire of God? And the answer, as it so often is, is actually buried in the text itself, but it, it, you know, it's so easy to miss. We just mouse right past it without seeing it. And it's found in verse 2. Verse 2 on the front end of this passage says, and maybe, maybe you caught this. It says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, in a flame of fire within a bush. Now, notice this. At the beginning of this passage, it says the angel of the Lord was in the bush. But throughout the rest of the passage, it says that it was actually the Lord in the bush. So here's the question. Which was it? Was it the angel of the Lord interacting with Moses that day, or was it the Lord himself? And the answer is yes. Right. If, uh, <laughs> if you mouse over the Old Testament, I did a little bit of research this week. Angels are mentioned a number of times in Scripture, just regular old angels. Sometimes they're given a name, like Gabriel or Michael. Most of the time they're not, like seraphim and cherubim. But about a, probably a, more than a dozen times in the Old Testament, I'll just say routinely throughout the Old Testament, there's this mysterious figure who's not an angel of the Lord. He is the angel of the Lord. 
And every time he shows up, he is deliberately portrayed as a paradox because it'll say that the angel of the Lord showed up and said this, and then it'll say God said it. Or the angel of the Lord showed up and did this, and then it'll say God did it. And as a side note, this is one of the many reasons that I have such confidence that the Bible legitimately has a divine origin. Because if people legitimately just made this whole thing up and passed it along for generation to generation, then surely some scribe would have caught this and said, hey, wait a minute, you said the angel of the Lord showed up, but then you said it was God himself. I'm really glad I caught this. We almost look like idiots. But more than a dozen times throughout the Old Testament, this character who is an apparent contradiction shows up, an apparent paradox, because he's shown on the one hand to be identical to the Lord, yet at the same time distinct from the Lord. Now, for all my Bible scholars out there, can you think of any other figure in Scripture that is deliberately portrayed to be equal with God yet distinct from him? Alec Modier, an Irish biblical scholar, had this to say about this mysterious figure that showed up in that burning bush that day. There's only one other person in the Bible who's both identical with, yet distinct from, the Lord. One who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a supreme display of his outreaching mercy. Here it is. The angel of the Lord cannot be understood except as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. Whom Moses interacted with that day, though I don't think he would have dared dream, was Jesus Christ himself before he was born into humanity. And that is why, that is why, In John's gospel account, chapter 8, Jesus Christ actually said, before Abraham was, I am. That is a deliberate nod to the story that we spent time in this morning, and it is in no uncertain terms one of of many of Jesus' claims to divinity. This is why you either kill Jesus or you crown him. You can't say he's a good guy. You can't say he's a, he's a moral example. You can't say he's a wise teacher. Jesus is either among the most wicked figures in human history for the billions of people that he deliberately led astray, or he actually is who he claimed to be. You kill him or you crown him. The question is, though, how is it that the angel of the Lord is the means by which Moses could enter into the presence of God without being consumed? And the answer is this thing we talk about a lot around here that we refer to as the gospel. Because centuries after this interaction in Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord was born into humanity, Jesus Christ. And at the end of his life, as he hung on a cross, what Jesus was experiencing is what Moses should have experienced in the presence of God that day. What he was experiencing is he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he called out in agony on the cross, my God, why are you forsaking me? What Jesus was experiencing was what you and I deserve to experience in the presence of God as he took our sins on himself and stood in our place before a holy God. He literally had the presence of God, the fire of God, descending on him and consuming him as though he were you and I. And even though his disciples were told by him what would happen, they could not wrap their minds around how the Son of God would be treated that way by God the Father. But what they couldn't understand until the resurrection was that Jesus was not being treated that way for his own sins, but for yours and mine and theirs and Moses's and the whole sins of humanity. And now the hope of the gospel is that by grace through faith in his name, the presence of God can enter into your life. And through Jesus, 
that the presence of God is a fire that will refine you rather than consume you. And it will turn you into a walking display of God's light and God's power and God's beauty. And you will be a burning bush that burns with the fire of God but will never throughout all eternity be consumed. That's the gospel. That brings us to our fourth and it's going to be our final idea during our time together. Number four, it's that God is a transforming God. I mentioned this on the front end. I think you can make a case that this is the most important and pivotal moment in Moses' life. Because prior to this, if you read um, chapter 2, what you'll find is that uh, Moses had murdered somebody. If you wonder what he's doing out in the middle of nowhere to begin with, it's because he murdered an Egyptian taskmaster and had to run because he was afraid of being outed. Um, And if you read past this, you'll find that Moses, even at this point in his life, was just riddled with insecurity about his own inability. And so what we're being presented with here in Exodus 3 is the picture of somebody who was running from the shame of his past. Maybe somebody listening to me right now can relate to that. And what we're being presented with here in Exodus chapter 3 is the picture of someone who was still so riddled with insecurities about their own inability in their present. Maybe somebody listening to me can relate to that. But what's amazing is that none of that mattered to God. And as he's done for every other character in the Bible, and as he's done for, for you and I, as he's willing to do for anyone who comes to him, what we see in this story is that God met Moses exactly where he was, and he made him into something that he could never been apart from God. He turns this man who's running away from the shame of his past and riddled with insecurities into the leader and and really the savior of the nation of Israel. All of it is just a testament to the transforming power of God. And and the last thing I'll point out before we close today is, maybe you caught this, when God first identifies himself to Moses, he says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if you have read the book of Genesis and you've held a magnifying glass to the lives of those three men, you know how insanely encouraging it actually is that God would dare identify himself with people like that. And we, we love to cherry pick the best parts of like Abraham's life. He's a man of faith, 75 years old. He takes this journey, trusts God. If you look at all that scripture has to say about Abraham, I don't know how he ever looked his wife in the eye. I don't know how he ever looked himself in the eye. There's a number of places I could turn, but just one story. There's a moment in Abraham's life where his wife, Sarah, knows that she can't get pregnant, loses hope that she'll ever get pregnant. So she says, why don't you just sleep with my maidservant, Hagar, have a son through her. And so Abraham does. And so Hagar conceives, gives birth to Abraham's son, Ishmael. And as polygamous relationships always do, everything deteriorates. Everyone starts acting terribly toward one another and it, it, the fabric of, of humanity breaks down. And so Sarah is, is you know, incensed at Hagar and Hagar is rubbing the fact that she has a child in Sarah's face. So Sarah tells Abraham, hey, I want you to send them away. And so just consider this for a moment. Abraham, at that point in his life, had no problem sending out Hagar, who he had just slept with and gotten pregnant, as well as his own son, Ishmael. He had no problem sending them out into the wilderness to die. Best case scenario, they're going to die in about two days of dehydration. Abraham has no problem with that. God says, I'm willing to be called Abraham's God. Does that shock you? You take Isaac absolutely terrible father. Didn't even, he didn't even attempt to hide the favoritism that he showed for one of his sons, which wreaked havoc throughout their lives as parenting like that always does. And actually the pain of that would meet itself out generation after generation throughout his descendants in the story of the Bible. God says, I'm Isaac's God. I have no problem identifying with him. D- Jacob, Jacob was a, was a conniving snake of a man. 
so deceptive nobody could trust him, so manipulative, always looking for who he can deceive and, and, and get what he wants and get his way, God says, I'm Jacob's God. And the fact that God is willing to be called their God, it's almost like God is saying, Moses, and it's like he's saying this to you today, he's saying, if you know what it's like to fail, if you know what it's like to fail as a parent, if you know what it's like to fail as a spouse, if you know what it's like to let down the people that depended on you the most, to, to, to hurt the people that are around you, if you know what it's like to do things that you're not proud of, that you hope are never brought to light, that you quietly wrestle with the shame of, you are exactly the kind of person I'm looking for. God says, I've changed the world through people like that, so just imagine what I could do through you. He is a transforming God. Let me call the worship team up. We're going to close with this. What, what I wanted to do today, my goal, was to present to you the picture of who the Bible says God is. That first off, he's a real God that we don't get to create, modify, uh, or manipulate. Number two, he's a God who can be known. Number three, he's a paradoxical God. But number four, he's a God who's willing to transform us. At the end of our time today, and we are at the end of our time today, I just want to leave you with one final question. Don't you want that? Don't you want what Moses experienced that day in Exodus chapter 3? Don't you want to have an encounter with a God like that? And if your answer is yes, then I hope you do what this passage tells us Moses did. Because twice in this story, we're told that Moses made the decision to go over and see. And that phrase is a Hebrew idiom that simply means that Moses was willing to let God interrupt his life. Moses had a plan for his life. Moses had a routine. He had an agenda. But when God showed up, Moses said, I can't let this moment pass. I'm going to let this God interrupt my plans for my life, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to lean in, and I'm going to figure out what's really going on here and who he really is. And I don't know what that means for you today. I don't know what God has led you through prior to this moment. I don't know what he's doing in your life behind the scenes right now. That's holy ground between you and God. But I do know this. I do know this. If Moses were alive today, if he could speak to us today, he would say, go over and see who this God is. See this God that changed my life forever. See what he can do in you. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you of all the things that I could say. God, I'm so thankful that you are not, you are not some distant, dormant, disconnected, impersonal force that we so often think you are or feel that you are, or treat you as. God, thank you that you speak. Thank you that you are alive. Thank you that you are a God who seeks and saves the lost. Thank you that you're a God who can be known. You've spoken in creation, which is why anything exists at all. You've spoken through your word, which is why we know how to get to you. We know what you're like. We know what you expect. We know what you've done. And you've spoken finally through Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. I just want to lift up every man, woman, and child that listens to this message, God. Some of us need to go and see you for the very first time. For the very first time. There's people listening to me. They need to go and see you for the very first time. Some of us need to see you again. Whoever it is, wherever they're coming from, would you make your presence as real to them as you did to Moses that day in Exodus chapter 3, that we as a people would become a burning bush of your light and your power and your glory and your beauty. In the name of your Son, amen.